This is Abscond with Ethan Renault, episode six, with special guest James Jason. You're listening to Details, that's D3 Tales, like details, but three instead of an E. Um, you can find his music at anthonypecoraro.bandcamp.com. That's Anthony, P E C O R A R O.bandcamp.com. And for today's episode, I had the privilege of interviewing a friend of mine named James Jason. I met him at Moody several years ago, and we've kept in touch ever since. And James is one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to analyzing the world, relating it to theology and politics and history and all these things. He's been a heavy influence of mine with my systems blog posts, if you've read any of those. So if you've enjoyed those blog posts or you're interested in hearing about Russia or the church or a history of theology and how Christians can be most effective in the world, you're really going to enjoy this episode of the podcast. So I got on the phone with him. The quality is not great, so I'm working on improving that for the next time. But just be aware that I was recording through my iPhone, his end of the conversation, but hopefully it'll be better in the future. But stick around for an awesome episode. Um, James drops some crazy knowledge on me, and uh, we get to benefit from that. So here's my conversation with my friend, James Jason. Okay, so James, we've obviously talked in the past a lot about systems, and you've had countless insights to, uh, to helping me think through systems, to thinking about um, history through the lens of theology and vice versa. And why don't you talk a little bit about yourself first, maybe introduce, uh, you and I met at Moody, we went to Moody Bible Institute together, and where are you now, what are you doing, what's your, what's your deal? Uh, okay, uh, my name is James Jason. I'm currently a student at the University of Chicago, uh, studying international relations, and my interest is really focused on the confluence of war and conflict and uh, religion, and that that gets into uh, a number of different rabbit holes uh, depending on uh, the exact um, questions being asked and answered. Um, but what this uh, stream of thought has allowed me to do is start to think about the world that we live in in broader systemic terms. And my undergraduate education was in theology. And my, my real purpose and goal is to consider these broader systems from a theological lens, hoping for the day that uh, Jesus Christ will redeem all of them. Sweet. So can we start by maybe defining what we mean when we say systems or systemic? Yeah, it might be challenging to do because we could think of systems from a very micro level. The work of Michel Foucault would obviously be invoked here um, of thinking of like individual relations or, you know, relations on a smaller level, what you would consider like personal. And then we've got we could blow that all the way up to the macro level where you're thinking about like interstate relations, international relations. And so the thing is systems affect our lives in all of these different dimensions. 
from the smallest to the largest. Uh, so, for instance, if two preeminent states in today's world, I won't mention any names, if large powers went to war today, that would change how we lived in a very radical way. Um, but in the same vein, for instance, if, if somebody in, in your family got sick, that sort of system would also radically affect how you're living your day-to-day -day life. And so systems broadly can refer to both of these, but I think in our past conversations, Ethan, you and I have talked about how larger systems seem to pressure our day-to-day -day lives. Right. And, the, I mean, we, we talked in the past about how the church is one of the largest systems on the earth, right? And how that system itself has changed drastically since the time of Christ. And to ignore these changes would basically be ignorant and foolish. And obviously some of the key shifts within the church system would be the Reformation and things like that. Do you want to talk about anything related to like the Reformation or the church as a system? Yeah, I would love to. You know, the church is the oldest human institution is that, that still exists today. Okay. I never thought um, about it like that. Yeah, I mean, if, if we think about it, the church is literally, there's nothing, there's no meeting of human beings that is gathered for as long as the church has been alive. Hmm. You know, for over 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has worshipped in, you know, sometimes different, but historically continuous and God-honoring ways for longer than literally any other human institution has has in the face of, you know, history. What about the Jewish synagogue? Now, that, I guess that's a, that's a fair critique. I would make a difference in the church insofar as uh, the synagogue at many times was broken and diffuse. I would think to the exiles, uh, even the, the creation of the Sumerians. What about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Would that play a part in it? Unde yes, of course, because that, that forced um, Judaism to radically redefine itself. Right. And I think um, you could definitely make a case that Judaism and the synagogue culture extends further than Christianity. However, I, I am going to stake a claim and say that the Christian manifestation of the Judeo-Christian tradition has affected the world in a more profound way, although Judaism has definitely been around since time immemorial. It has not shaped the world as directly as Christian belief has. And from that perspective, I think it's worthwhile to privilege Christianity more broadly in, in view of our systemic uh, goals. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I agree, but would you expound on that a little bit? Why is the church, even if it's not as old as Judaism, <clears throat> we believe it's a continuation of Judaism, and Jesus in John 4 says salvation is from the Jews, but why then would you argue that the church has more profoundly shaped the world than Judaism ever did? I would, I would locate Christianity's outsized influence in, in world history, specifically in an event that happens in 313 AD. When Is that the Battle of the Milvian Bridge? That's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, yeah. And the reason I'm going to locate it there is because Christianity, unlike Judaism, takes root 
in secular courts, or not secular courts, at that point in time, Rome was actually a pagan country, empire, really, and even though Judaism played a very influential role in the ancient Near East, Judaism never governed more territory than Israel, Hmm. Uh, and And sure, they, for instance, they were advisors to kings of Persia and Babylon. You know, we could think of Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, you know, a number of other prominent figures in in foreign courts, even as far back as Joseph being an advisor to Pharaoh. Their religion never structured the entire national or empire-wide mentality morality or legal system uh, beyond their own borders. Hmm. And so that's why I'm trying to situate Christianity as having an outsized impact. Because after Constantine really legalizes and normalizes Christianity, uh, at first it it becomes nothing more than a fad, right? The empire, uh, excuse me, the emperor legalized it. And so now it's the fashionable thing to do to become a Christian. Or if you want to get ahead, you become a Christian because that gives you, you know, credibility, the inside track with the channels of power in the late Roman Empire. But then after the collapse of Rome, the biggest difference is Christianity hangs around. And the Christianity that grows in the dark ages of Europe is really the only thing that these very different barbarian tribes have in common. You know, stretching as far as all the way from Russia to Ireland, all of Europe starts to become Christianized within the period we would categorize as the Dark Ages and the early Middle Ages. At that point, would you still... You didn't use the word Christendom, but isn't that what we kind of refer to as Constantine instituting in 313? Kind of this, this nationwide... Christian culture, so to speak, that was kind of instituted at the time of Constantine and is only now beginning to fade away? Yeah, I mean, I I might uh, raise a point on now being the time when it's fading away. You know, that's still up for debate, and we could make a, a couple of different cases to say that Christendom ended earlier than we might have wanted to think. But yeah, uh, you're totally right. And usually we're we're going to break up how we think of Christendom into Latin Christendom and Byzantine Christendom. Hmm. Because one of the things that we're seeing even to this day is the rifts in the church have forced us literally to split the Christian world into East and West. Right. And as much as Catholics have blamed Protestants for splitting the church in uh, 1517. Unfortunately, the historical record shows that it was actually the Catholic church that split the church uh, first. Um, Well, because there were two great schisms prior to the Reformation, right? Right. And the biggest thing is that Rome split from Byzantium. Mm. And unfortunately, the Fourth Crusade, you know, as, as bad of a name as the Crusades get... The Fourth Crusade is arguably the worst, because instead of instead of uh, European knights going to fight against Muslim forces in the Middle East, they actually turn their boats and go and destroy what's left of the flagging Byzantine Empire. They take Constantinople and they create a crusader state in what is now Turkey, and essentially seal the doom 
and seal the schism of East and West. Mm. And this is going to this is going to become important when we look at uh, the events of the 20th century and the 19th century before that uh, that really have given us the shape and character of our modern world. Mm. And what year was that split between um, Rome and Byzantium? You'll have to forgive me, I can't think of the exact date, but it's around 1050, okay. I want to say. So almost 500 full years before the Protestant Reformation. Exactly. And that's really sent the East and the West on two drastically different paths that we're still feeling the repercussions of today. So what would you say are some of the biggest differences between Eastern and Western Christianity? I know one of the things that leaps to my mind is the status of icons, and hopefully I can use icons as uh, a tool to explain the broader order that's going on here. Right. And can you define Um, icons real quick for those of us who didn't go to Bible college? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. So the, the word icon what we think of in English as I-C-O-N, stems from the Greek icon, I-K-O-N. And the biggest difference that we can think of is icon simply means image. And in Byzantine Christianity, Eastern Christianity, as it's later going to be called, they went through a pretty immense struggle concerning this issue. And the question was, these icons all had representations of theological issues or salvific issues. So like, for instance, there's a very famous icon that depicts three men sitting at a table and one of them is gesturing to another and another is reaching for a cup at the center of the table. And even though this picture, uh, this painting, seems pretty benign, the icon is actually representing the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity before Jesus comes to earth. And so what all of these, sorry, I, I probably failed to to define what an icon actually is. An icon is, is a physical representation, a drawing, a painting that illustrates a deeper theological truth. And what the Eastern Church has done is they've invested these icons, not with spiritual power in like a magical sense, but with a, a theological gravity that these illustrations are representing a deeper mystical reality that we're living in right now. Hmm. So would they almost align icons on the same level as like communion or baptism as far as like a a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality? Um, Not quite because they're still going to hold on to baptism and the Eucharist as sacrament. But an icon is like, think of an icon like a family photo. In the sense that an icon tells you uh, who you are in a profound way that, you know, sometimes your your last name doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. You know, if you saw a picture of, of your family or a loved one having dinner and laughing or doing something that's per- particular and unique to the life that you've lived, that tells you something that pulls on your personality in a way that just like trying to define yourself to somebody else doesn't. And so in a roundabout way, I think it's fair to say that the East in a sense has a more mystical, uh, spiritual understanding of the Christian tradition than perhaps the West does through Roman Catholicism and later through, through Protestant Christianity. 
we definitely see the West as placing a lot of emphasis on physical, concrete manifestations of faith. Whether in Catholicism it would be your sacramental practice, or in Protestant Christianity, the life that you live, and your adherence to uh, scriptural, moral, and ethical precepts. That's interesting. And you, last time we talked, didn't you talk about Russian orthodoxy? Is that what it was? Yeah, so one of my focuses in school, in international relations, has been concerned with this issue of the place of Russia in our modern world. Um, I started on this track in 2015 when I was introduced to some of the goings-on in modern Russia, and I got more interested once once I started investigating what this Russian Federation was doing in our, our world. And that culminated in a study I did on the place of Russian orthodoxy within the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, that takes control of Russia and its surrounding territories in 1917. I was interested, Ethan, because I wondered why it was that the East and the West had embarked on such different paths and why countries that both called themselves Christian, called themselves by the name of Christ, end up becoming mortal enemies. Would you consider Russia Eastern or Western? (laughs) That might be a more complicated question (laughs) um, than at at first glance, Mm -hmm. uh, because this is a question that Russia has always sought to it's a it's a question that russia has has dealt with for a long time or would you say that they're neither yeah i would actually i would stake my claim and say that russia is unique Hmm. um so that russia is is heavily influenced by the east in fact they spent a long time being vassals under subjugation to the mongol empire that's actually when russia started to you know cut its teeth, so to speak. But throughout its history, the West has always sort of looked down on Russia for being backwards and, you know, too slow to catch up Hmm. uh, in need of help. But Russia has always had uh, unique concerns that are different than the West that have given it a unique national character. Russia is unlike any other country in the world. It spans 11 time zones. It constitutes one-sixth of the Earth's landmass, hmm. and it borders on the Western uh, Christian world, the Islamic Middle East, and uh, East Asia as well, both China, uh, Japan. And so it's had this this history that literally no other country in the world has, you know, even comes close to hmm. in terms of the diversity of of people it's had to deal with, the difference in the concerns it's it's consumed itself with. And so, yeah, I, I would call it unique hmm. is the word I would use. Um, geographically, doesn't it kind of overlap both? Like if you kind of put either Jerusalem or Constantinople or Rome in the middle, it kind of overlaps on both geographically. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's really at the... Living in America, we tend to think of center as the United States of America. Right. Or Western Europe, you know, maybe Britain, where we came from. But at least in terms of like, uh, in the words of an obscure geopolitician from the 
early 20th century, Halford Mackinder. <laughs> he called uh, Africa, Europe, and Asia the world continent. And he said that Russia lies at the heart of the world continent. Hmm. And he said that whoever controls the heartland, that is Russia, controls the world continent. Hmm. And whoever controls the world continent controls the world. And I mean, so he was a Brit. And the Brits from, from the 20th century, right, the, the country that had the largest global empire, considered the Russians as their greatest threat. Hmm. So, I mean, by, by that definition, then that would make Vladimir Putin the most powerful man in the world? <laughs> you can see why that's a definitely a tempting position to hold. Hmm. There are some, some goings-on in Russia right now that would maybe make you think twice about making that assertion. For instance, Vladimir Putin might win his... Oh, goodness. This would be his third presidential term in a row. I don't know if it is or isn't, but I know it's his fourth presidential term overall, hmm. <sighs> which means he's been in power for over 24 years if he wins this next presidential election, uh, which would place him next to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and a Alexander II as the longest ruling Russian ruler since the time of the czars. Mm. Now, granted, Joseph Stalin was premier for a very long time. But, yeah, Vladimir Putin has made it his best effort to sort of recreate uh, this Russian empire that existed up until 1991. Mm. What a lot of millennials forget, because this was happening... Uh, at the time of our birth, or at the time we were very young, is Russia. We forget that the Soviet Union was immense, and that the Soviet Union really was this incredible powerhouse that controlled uh, much of the world and dominated the goings-on of a lot of politicians. And when it broke up in 1991, literally 16 different countries came out of, of the Soviet Union. Just to put it in like relative terms, if America broke up, that would be like the entire West Coast and much of the Midwest or like the mountain region just became a, a separate entity. Mm. You know, that's, that's a radical shift in mentality when you go from governing that large of a territory to that small of a territory, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's like at the time that that guy at the beginning of the 20th century said that, he was saying it about a much different Russia than it is today. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. So <clears throat> this kind of, le kind of leads me to something we've talked about in the past, which I really, really am interested in, um, kind of bringing it back to systems. I somewhat touched on this in my blog post called You Can't Win, Systems Part or something like that. Yeah, the basic idea is that eliminating the system is not the way to create equality and create the most the most justice for the most people, right? Because you said you said yourself that um, if you destroy the system, then whoever destroyed the system simply becomes the next elite, right? Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit as far as, like, why systems are inherently flawed 
or at least have his, historically been flawed. And what you think the best approach is to changing a system or um, creating justice or equality for the, the most people? That's a tough topic. Um, I know we've, we've talked about this before, and each time I you know, come face-to-face with this grand of a question, uh, it's always a little bit intimidating. Yeah, because, definitely. You know, we're, we're talking about the things that govern our lives, determine what we can and can't do with our days, and that's a, that's a challenging thought to consider. Yeah. I mean, we, I talked about this in the past with you about thrift stores, for instance, right? Like, I'm trying to shop at thrift stores in order to help people, but you pointed out that, you know, I drive a car which depletes the ozone layer, which causes tsunamis in those very countries that I'm trying to help, right? So I'm a very, very small portion of a very, very big system. And I guess another way you could look at it is if we take another really harmless topic like abortion and talk about that through the lens of a system, you have all these pro-life people protesting outside of Planned Parenthood. And I myself am adamantly pro-life, absolutely against abortion. And yet... It's interesting to see that abortion went down when Obama was in office because he created um, holistic alternatives without necessarily fighting abortion itself. What I'm trying to say is that maybe protesting or fighting the issues that we're so passionate about are really too myopic. Is that the right word? They're too zoomed in um, to create effective change within a system. Yeah. You said it, myopic, short-sighted. I think I'm going to try and try and use those terms uh, in an ironic way. Okay. Much of what we'll call today evangelicalism, uh, which really began in the late 1940s and has since grown into its its own, began as an attempt by conservative Christianity to sort of come out of its uh, slumber or to assert itself publicly after the fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century. Mm. And we thought by taking our moral issues to the halls of power, we could create a, a new world based on a, a Christian morality. And, you know, we're, we're like 70 years into this movement uh, where we stand today. And the reason I bring up evangelicalism is because it has adopted this model that the way to create change is to lobby Congress, to vote for people who share our moral concerns. And one of the things that's bothered me is in this last election, 2016, 80% of evangelicals reported voting for Donald Trump. Um, And... The rationale behind that is largely that he made some broad overtures that he was pro-life. Right. But I was, I've been considering this for a little while because, I mean, well, because of the events of 2016 and 2017, I thought back to the Bush administration, uh, Bush Jr., H.W., one of my favorite characters ever to occupy the Oval Office. And I was thinking, like, back in 2000, there was a Republican president who came out and said that he was uh, in support of 
uh, Christian values. Uh, there was a dominant Republican majority in Congress, both in the House and in the Senate. And even in those days, very little pro-life legislation was passed, mm. which made me reconsider the question, why is evangelicalism so in love with the GOP? Why do we keep electing GOP leaders if they're not using their political capital to achieve the moral victories we're electing them to do? Mm. I brought this up with a, an old professor of mine, this notion of like, hey, I want to I make a difference. I want to change how things are done. At the time, I was reading a guy named Charles Taylor, and the book was A Secular Age. And I thought, you know, it's, it's one of the most astounding intellectual efforts I've ever read. Mm -hmm. It was completely redefining how I thought about the world I lived in. And I sat down with my professor and I was like, I want to be this guy. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to use my academic pursuits to change how people think about the world that they live in and to promote the cause of Jesus Christ in the academy uh, by, you know, studying these large overarching intellectual trends. Right. And he looked across the table from me and the man is one of the most compassionate men I've ever met. Um, but he said, listen, I, I understand the sentiment, you know, that you have. I get where you're coming from. I understand what you want to do. But you're going about this all wrong. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about, man? You know, if you want to change things, you go to the halls of power. You go to the people who have influence. You get change from the people who can change things. And what he said to me then, and what has stuck with me now, is if you want to change things, you need to look in your backyard. You need to look in your house. And the reality is, change does not happen when it's imposed from the top down. Hmm. Because all top-down change really inspires is rebellion against the change that the top created. Hmm. What really inspires change is when neighborhoods... Uh, families, individuals change the paradigms that they're living in. Mm. And by doing that, they change the systems that they create. Uh, so revisiting that statement I made to you that if we, you know, if we destroy the system, what we're really going to do is just open us, open ourselves up to somebody else creating a, a new system that was the same as the old system. Right. But if we change the character and the composition of our relationships, of our small political entities, you know, our neighborhoods, our communities, even our, like, like nobody considers who they vote for, for the school board, hmm. or, you know, the mayor of their town, if you live in the suburbs. We only really think that, that the votes that matter are the, the ones we cast for the president. But the votes that we cast for, say, our county judge might impact the friend of ours who gets into trouble and has to go before the judge that we elected. Hmm. And, you know, this has been a, a reframing of how I've tried to go about things because as much as I've been interested in these grand historical trends, you know, this is, you know, this has challenged me and even pointed out areas that I've been wrong and needed to repent in, thinking that by addressing these overarching trends, I could cause change when in reality, the truth is, how am I affecting the neighbors that I want to change, that I want to help their lives? Hmm. So, and, and 
if you think about it like that, and I haven't thought about it like that before, but it seems like Jesus, by the way he lived and ministered and taught, he knew that, it sounds like, you know? I mean, Jesus never sought to be the king of Rome. He never sought to be the king of the Jews. And he was labeled that mockingly, you know, by the Roman government or by the Pharisees. But he, yeah, it, it completely makes sense that Jesus sought to change the system from the bottom up rather than the top down. I mean, who does Jesus pick as his confidants? Yeah, and who fishy. does he entrust with his, with his mission? The equivalent of like garbage men or like sewer cleaners scrubs yeah each and every one of them dropouts um guys who have no business doing what he's tasked them to do yeah uh and this is this is hitting on one of the you know cornerstones of the kingdom of god which is that in the kingdom of the lord the first will be last and the last will be first Mm. and oftentimes we Especially in today's materialist, connected culture, the people who don't have iPhones, who don't even have cell phones, you know, the last among us, the people we see on the street if we live in the city, or the people who are really struggling uh, to support themselves, the addicts, the no-goods, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, these are the people who Jesus is sitting with and spending his time with. Mm. These are the people that those who consider themselves on the up and up should attempt to learn from. Because we we think that because we have all of this that surrounds us, you know, lights that turn on when we flip a switch, water that comes out when we uh, turn a knob, uh, heat that keeps us warm in the winter, it distracts us from the reality of just how contingent our next breath is. We're not guaranteed another second. Hmm. And the worlds that we construct in, you know, 2018 try to, they try to deceive us that this isn't the truth. They try to tell us that we're going to be here forever, that we're going to be loved uh, continuously and without problem. You know, that's kind of, it's my cynical view on, a lot of the, the dating apps that people use today <laughs> is that, you know, like if we can't find love because we're not willing to open ourselves up to the possibility of being hurt, then we're just going to find somebody who's either equally cynical or we're just going to swipe again hmm. and find the next person who can fill us temporarily. Right. So I guess to sum up what you just said, kind of, when we think about the kingdom of God as like this upside down world almost, you could say it's a system that's the complete reverse or opposite or inversion of worldly systems, right? So if we think of the kingdom of God as a system, it's the complete opposite of worldly systems. But we've been trying to go about changing our world using worldly system means trying to implement kingdom values, in a sense. That, that's just it. Yeah. And much of what that's done is make people despise the message that we're, we're giving. Hmm. I was standing outside a class the other day, and I heard a few people having a, a theological conversation, or what, what could pass for a theological conversation. The last sentence that was spoken, and what was allowed to be the last word, was that... All I learned from, this is another student uh, who I go to school with saying, 
saying this. He said, all I learned from church was that sex was bad. Hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't as, as much uh, disturbed by the sentence that he said, that he echoed that sentiment, because I understood it. Like, the thing that stood out in many of the youth group gatherings that I went to was that there, there's this, like, hey, don't have sex till you're married push that's being made. What frustrated me in that moment and what I really wanted to, to communicate uh, to this group of people was that the kingdom that we're serving is so much more uh, expansive, deep, wide, transformative. Mm. There's so much more than what you got out of. Right. I could blame it on the individual that I heard saying this, or I could blame it on the, the church that he grew up in. But the reality is um, it's as much a systemic issue as it is a personal issue. Mm. Um, we've tried to inculcate the generation growing up with Christian values, but we did so without actually teaching them who Jesus was. Hmm. So I learned more about being, I learned more about quote unquote Christian ethics or like the, the proper moral positions to have to please Jesus than I did about who Jesus was to inspire me to actually hold those moral positions. Hmm. Right. I learned I learned more about an abstract concept of sin than I did about what, say, me yelling at my sister or mother or brother did to our relationship and how that was sinful and what sin looked like in my day-to-day life. And the God against whom you are sinning, right? Exactly. And all of which is to say, like, I learned about God in a vacuum. Right. I learned about God in a plastic bottle. And so long as I I held these proper moral ethical positions and did them on a day-to-day basis, uh, I was taught that God would be pleased with me Hmm. or that he he wouldn't hold it against me. Right. And I think a lot of people have similar stories, at least my age. And what I'm hopeful for, you know, people talk about revival or a revision of uh, the political moral order. What I'm hopeful for is that people will start considering more openly and honestly the life that Jesus led, the community that he created, and the intent that he had with those people, yeah. with his kingdom, than what I encountered. Hmm. That's really good, man. Uh, why don't we go ahead and wrap it up there? I know that we could just keep talking for hours, but <laughs> I also don't want the poor listeners to have to sit through hours and hours of this. Instead, we'll end it here and keep them hungry for next time. Uh, Whenever we have a chance to sit down and chat again. Um, And so if you're listening to this and you have questions for James, who is evidently much smarter than I am about a lot of things, um, email me, Facebook me, Twitter me, just write in and say, what do you think about this? If maybe you disagree with something we talked about today, Maybe you agree with everything or want to know more or want to have James back or just say, hey, how about you never have James on again because we didn't like him at all. So anyway, um, thank you guys so much for listening to this. And James, do you have any parting words for the people who have just sat through this dense, this rigorous academic exercise on systems? (laughs) Thank you for your patience. And your long suffering. <laughs> I just want to echo everything that Ethan said. If you've got any questions, please get in touch with him. 
and we will be happy to provide a response. And if yeah. you're willing to to sit through another one, <laughs> give me a shout out, and we'll we'll do a part two. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, James. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure other people Thank do you, too. Ethan. Yeah. All right. All right. Till next time. That was James Jason, a friend of mine from college. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if you're listening this far in, you really have some endurance, and I applaud you. Um, but seriously, reach out to me. You can tweet at me, at Ethan Renault. Um, message me on Facebook, at Ethan Renault. Official is the page. It's at Ethan Renault Official altogether. Um, or you can email me through my website, ethanrenault.com. Um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me is just straight up through email. You click the contact button and send an email straight to me. I'd love to hear from you guys. James told me he would really love to hear from you guys as well. Feedback on anything we talked about today. I know we covered a lot of stuff and, uh, we really mean it when we say we'd love to hear from you, answer questions, um, you know, respond to disagreements. Um, it'd be really, really great to keep this conversation going. I'm sure I'll have James on again soon. But thank you guys again so much for listening. This has been Abscond with Ethan Renault and special guest James Jason.